You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. Today I am joined by guest Jack Carlson. He's the founder of Rowing Blazers. And Rowing Blazers just recently came out with their first collaboration with Seiko Watches. Jack, welcome. Thanks for having me. So I got to know you again through the watch industry. And then when I learned about you, I was like, this is an interesting person with an interesting background. And once again, watches have you know have acted to connect uh, other you know people who may have not, not otherwise ever met. Uh, but I'm I'm glad we did. Now, you wrote a book called Rowing Blazers that you end up turning to a clothing brand. Let's let's start with that. Talk about when you wrote the book Rowing Blazers and why uh, why Rowing Blazers is such a big deal to you. Yeah, it's been quite the odyssey uh, starting this brand and uh, developing it. And it it did start with a book, um, a book called Rowing Blazers that I thought was going to be a really niche book, basically, uh, for the rowing community. And it ended up taking off in the fashion community. Uh, Ralph Lauren ended up hosting a bunch of book events for it. And uh, it kind of laid the foundation for uh, starting my own brand, which which is also named Rowing Blazers. I mean, it uh, it kind of began um, with my involvement in the sport of rowing. I competed at a race called Henley Royal Regatta in uh, 2004. It's kind of like Wimbledon for rowing. Everybody wears blazers, um, all the athletes when they're not competing and all the spectators wear these very colorful blazers there. Um, I was yeah in high school at the time, the first time I raced there. Um, it's a single elimination uh, competition. We got knocked out in the first round, which oh. is not ideal. It, it left me with two things, though. One was a burning desire to come back and win the event one day, um, which after nine years of trying, uh, I eventually did in 2013. Um, the other thing that happened back in 2004 as a result of being knocked out in the first round is I had all this time to chat with the other um, competitors and the spectators and to learn some of these stories about, uh, about these colorful blazers at all these different clubs. And, uh, that gave me the idea, um, to, to write this book. So quick question, what makes these blazers different? And I'm sure there's a lot of things than the sort of formal wear suit blazer, as it's known to most people, like different materials. Cause I'm thinking those seem constricting. You can't really move around too much. Like how are these articles of clothing different functionally? Well, you know, people actually don't realize, but the the blazer as an article of clothing comes from the sport of rowing. And even the name blazer comes from the sport of rowing. I mean, the, the earliest blazers were like warm-up jackets. Um, uh, they were very practical kind of in their function. They were meant to be relatively loose-fitting, very comfortable. You could button them up or you could wear them open. You could turn the, the collar up uh, or you could you could have the lapels folded down. Um, they're made out of wool flannel, which was about as sort of athletic a material as, um, existed at the time. There was no <laughs> cotton Jersey. There's definitely no technical fabric at the time. Um, right. and, uh, rowers at Cambridge and Oxford started wearing these jackets for social events and for just hanging out around their colleges. 
uh, as well. And they were often made in very bright colors or striped fabric where they'd have contrast grow grain trim binding around the edges of the lapels and the top of the pockets. They'd have embroidery on the pocket um, that comes from the college, her- uh, you know, college's heraldry um, or some other sort of like symbol of the club or the team. Um, so that tradition goes on today and uh, they're very, very colorful. One of the um, very early club jackets was bright red or blazing red and was nicknamed the blazer. And that's actually where our modern word blazer comes from. Okay, so it does come from fire. Because I know from rowing, I'm like, what's on fire? Does that mean you're like, you're rowing very quickly? I wasn't sure where that came from. No, it just comes from the color. It's just a a blazing red jacket. And it was nicknamed a blazer. Um, Another early, early type of jacket, similar jacket, was nicknamed the bluer. And it was was a blue jacket. But um, blazer is the one that stuck. It was from Lady Margaret Boat Club at uh, Cambridge University. I uh, one of my minor claims to fame was rediscovering the first time the word blazer was ever used to refer to an article of clothing. Um, and it dates from 1852. Uh, and it, it literally just uh, was used to describe this one club's jacket. But uh, you can track over time. The word became more widespread. Other rowing clubs in Cambridge started to use it. Um, and then uh, other clubs in uh, other rowing clubs in Oxford, Durham, London, and then other sports beyond rowing. So you could have a cricket blazer and a rugby blazer and so on. Um, and the word the word just kind of gradually uh, uh, became uh, or came to mean what what it means today. That's pretty interesting. And again, I think most people, like you said, don't associate the blazer with with sportswear. Now, was was this just an England thing, or was this sort of a European thing? Like how 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 small of a world was this for a long time? No, it's. I mean, it's very British. It's um, you know, it started at Cambridge and Oxford, and uh, it started really just in the rowing communities at those two at those two universities. But you know, you're talking about the 1850s and you know, just gradually becoming a more sort of widespread type of clothing and a more widespread uh, word as well. Um, so that by the time you're in the 1900s, you know, the blazer has made its way across the Atlantic Ocean and you've got, you know, similar jackets and you've got the word blazer that's being used at American universities. And it made its way across to Europe and you've got Dutch rowing clubs um, and other Dutch student societies uh, uh, starting to adopt their own blazers. But it's it's a very British thing uh, at its roots. And how did the blazer turn into an important part of the modern formal attire? I mean, it's, there's a few different jackets, of course, that men's wear, but a blazer has always been known as sort of a, a classic. You wear it with a tie, especially in America today, you would do it on a formal occasion. How did it go from being sport to formal? Because again, in the actual the watch industry, this exact thing has happened so many times where there used to be like a sports chronograph. It's all of a sudden a dress watch today. So I'm just, I'm interested. How did this happen with the blazer? Yeah, I mean, the blazer originally was, um, and I think even today, it's not, it's not like a super formal thing. I mean, the blazer originally was a piece of very practical sportswear. Remember, I grew up in Los Angeles. So wearing a jacket like that automatically meant there was an well, office we'll, involved. We'll forgive or, you, know. you for that. <laughs> um, but uh, 
the blazer was originally like a very practical piece of sportswear and guys started wearing it um in social settings on terra firma as kind of status symbols you know rowing was the first organized team sport um at at cambridge and oxford um it was uh yeah if you were on the rowing team if you were in the in the boat club in your college you know you were kind of a big man on campus and it was very obvious it was like the sort of varsity jackets of their time i mean because these these blazers these jackets were very brightly colored you know you were really showing off and uh people started wearing them to uh to social occasions they were very um informal for the time i mean i went to grad school at oxford uh in the 21st century and you know you're still putting on like black tie a couple times a week you're putting on white tie a couple times a term and uh you know you're wearing academic robes that look like something out of harry potter so wearing like an unstructured wool flannel uh jacket with metal buttons was uh yeah it was like almost kind of a rebellious um thing at the time and you know i think that legacy lives on a little bit like a blazer you can wear in all sorts of different settings and you're not gonna you're not really gonna look out of place it's not like showing up you know somewhere wearing a tuxedo if you show up wearing a blazer over a you know over some kind of collared shirt maybe without a tie maybe even just over a t-shirt you know you can dress it it's a cliched thing to say but you can dress it down or you can dress it up you can wear it with gray flannel trousers and a white shirt and a tie and it's you know you can hang if you're meant to be wearing a suit um it is really a pretty versatile piece of clothing Okay, so as I'm hearing this, I'm thinking about the fact that, okay, you're an American, and then you went to school where there was this culture of wearing very specific outfits for very specific occasions. How did that change the educational experience? I mean, I know you didn't go to college everywhere at the same time, but you know that's not like most other colleges where there isn't as much uh, costuming. How does that change the sort of like university experience? I mean, I did my undergrad at Georgetown. Uh, Okay. Uh, so I had somewhat normal American college experience. Um, this was in kind of the early, you know, 20th century, like 05 to 09. It was a very, um, I don't know, it was a very interesting time in fashion. I think quote unquote preppy clothing was, was sort of at its peak at that time. Hashtag menswear was like just sort of starting to develop. It was a very different time in a way, actually, to today. Um, But yeah, then I went to grad school and I was there for about six years at Oxford. So I almost kind of like had full college experience all over again. I did a a master's and then a PhD um, at Oxford. A lot has been written about, um, you know, how academic gowns and white tie events and black tie events and so on affect the educational experience. and. I don't know, is it outdated and should they, you know, get rid of some of these traditions? I don't think they should. And I, I hope they don't. And it doesn't seem like they're planning to anytime. It seems fun. I mean, extravagant, but fun. It's, I think it's fun. Yeah. I think, you know, um, one of the things people say is that, you know, oh, it's, it smacks of kind of being elitist and so on, but you know, it's actually like the whole point. (laughs) 
I don't know that it's necessarily the whole point, but I'd say it's like everybody's kind of in it together. And it's um, it's about the institution. It's not about yourself. Yeah. People like watching Harry Potter. I mean, it's not like, oh, you only if you went to like, you know, this elite boarding school, you're going to enjoy Harry Potter because it's going to speak to your kind of like experience. No. And I think at, at Cambridge and Oxford, you know, it's often like the people like me who are from America or, you know, the, the kids who are from, you know, a background where they haven't necessarily, I mean, I don't know who is wearing, you know, black tie a couple times a week growing up anyway. But, you know, I'd say it's like the people who, for whom that is such a novelty that find it actually so cool and so interesting. Now, you mentioned that you studied archaeology at Cambridge. And I happen to know that Cambridge is one of the preeminent institutions in the world for archaeology. Uh, I actually went to an even more preeminent institution oh. for archaeology, which is Oxford. Um, oh, no okay. offense to uh, to the tabs, but um, uh, I, I didn't go to Cambridge. My apologies. We, we call it the other place. Okay, so you went to Oxford. <laughs> now, these two... Kidding, yeah, I went to Oxford. These yeah. two are the most esteemed, because I know that I mean, you have to say, compared to other countries, you know, and other places, these two together are a powerhouse. Obviously, not competitive at all. Um, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. What What was it about archaeology? I mean, it's not a common area for people to get into. You and I seem to both grow up on a lot of Indiana Jones, but where Where did that sort of career path up into a doctorate? Where did that become like a like a good idea to you? You know, like anybody that um, becomes an archaeologist today, uh, yeah, it did. It started with watching too much Indiana Jones, um, and uh, yeah, just getting this idea in my head that uh, this this would be a cool thing to do, and it, it was. Um, you know, I started studying Latin when I was, I guess, in seventh grade. Was always very interested in ancient history. Started studying Chinese when I was in high school. And I continued with both Latin and Chinese, uh, yeah, all the way through college and and then through grad school. Um, and I started studying these two ancient civilizations, kind of in comparison, ancient Rome and ancient China. And uh, yeah, I, I, I became very interested in the material culture and the art, basically, of of these two kind of contemporaneous empires, the Qin and Han dynasty, um, which is contemporaneous with the Roman Empire. And uh, I wanted to study these two civilizations in comparison. And um, I was fortunate enough to have a great uh, archaeology professor at Georgetown, um, Kathy Kiesling. She uh, recommended that I go on, a, on an excavation in Italy. And so I spent basically two summers um, ex excavating, uh, sort of like a, a pre-Roman Etruscan temple, um, in, uh, Tuscany. And that was my, that was my kind of field experience with archaeology. And that kind of, uh, teed me up to go to graduate school. So in a fight between the Romans and the ancient Chinese, who would win? Ooh, that's, uh, I don't know. That's a tough one. And, and, uh, I guess fortunately for everybody, that never that never happened. I mean, they the two civilizations were were trading partners across the Silk Road, but um, there was never really any kind of direct contact. 
which is part of the reason actually why I think they're kind of useful um, units to study in comparison because you don't have any of the kind of muddied waters of, of you know, two um, civilizations or two empires that were in kind of direct, direct contact. So, I mean, you, you have to have thought about that because you chose these two because they're both powerful and they both accomplished a lot, right? Like, what were you trying to answer about today's world, you know, through a study of these two, these two uh, old empires? Um, without trying to go too deep in the weeds of, uh, you know, what I basically wrote my PhD thesis about, I mean, I do think there's a lot that um, we can learn about the modern world uh, by studying these two ancient civilizations. And obviously, you know, Western civilization owes a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of its sort of composition to to the classical world and, and to uh, the Roman Empire. Just as uh, you know, Chinese Chinese culture, Chinese civilization um, owes a lot to uh, to you know the Qin and Han period, the you know the earliest days of China as a kind of unified uh, state. But I was really studying actually kind of the um, visual representations of imperial power uh, under these two regimes, and for example. You know, in the case of the Roman Empire, we kind of take it for granted, especially Romanists, you know, take it for granted that um, having the emperor's portrait uh, on coins was a way of kind of bolstering the imperial regime's legitimacy. Um, and that's, that's uh, why they did it, right? Like the whole point was to be able to remind you who's in power, like, listen to this guy. Yeah, kind of. I mean, you know, the word propaganda, even, you know, in a kind of earlier age of Roman studies, would get thrown around quite a lot. But, you know, you actually look the, you know, the early Chinese empire, the same time period, almost exactly the same size of population, almost exactly the same size of, of territory. You know, there were really no visual representations of the emperor anywhere in, in the whole, in the whole, you know, in the whole state. Um, and it just kind of looking at these two very different, but very similarly sort of like, um, similarly sized and similar time period in the, you know, grand scheme of world history, um, uh, you know, states that do things so very differently, it calls into question a lot of our, you know, assumptions, um, and our sort of superficial explanations for why things were done a certain way. And, you know, forgive the pun, but I think looking at these things in comparison makes us dig a little deeper um, in, in kind of explaining why things were the way they were. Don't we often fall into the fallacy that people in the past were unsophisticated and thus ignorant compared to our enlightened selves, when in fact, sometimes they average person knew more than our average person? Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I don't know what it says about myself, but, uh, I usually, um, I usually kind of, uh, I don't know. I, I almost kind of go the other way in studying ancient people. I almost kind of, uh, you know, I think about them and I think about all the things that they knew that we don't know. And uh, I don't know what it says about me, but 
you know, I tend to think that the the average 21st century human isn't necessarily all that impressive anyway. So I, I'm almost right. the other way around. Well, I think that what's important, at least it's helped me in history, is to try to put yourself in the context, assuming that's, that biologically speaking, the last 12,000 or so years of human beings have been essentially the same. Some have been smaller because they haven't had the same nutrient level we have. If they had as much food, they'd, they'd grow as big as we are but they've had the same capacity as us. Of course, less sophistication, they've learned less about the world than themselves, but similar in terms of the rationalizations they make and the, and the emotions they use to make decisions. And we can put ourselves in their shoes and, like you said, learn a lot about the human condition as well as what's going on with us right now. Yeah, I mean, history is, is the greatest teacher, I think. Um, you know, all of the sort of problems and questions about, you know, the meaning of life, you know, a higher power. Um, what are we doing here? You know, have all been, you know, pondered and addressed, um, you know, <laughs> uh, oh, you know, many, many times over in, in, in a far more, in far more robust ways than I'll probably ever get around to, you know, my, um, obviously my own studies focused a lot on, on art and monuments so I'm always looking at things like, I don't know, the terracotta warriors, for example, um, or, you know, Roman triumphal monuments, the uh, column of Trajan, for instance. And, uh, you know, when you think about those kinds of projects, those kinds of, of works, basically, um, and the fact that they were created without any of the modern technologies that we have, you know, it's just kind of all the more impressive and it's it's kind of a cliched point to make. But I guess, you know, it, it does address some of what you're talking about. I mean, it kind of boggles the mind to think how they did it. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's very awe inspiring. One of the things that sort of I picked up on history was the sort of sad fact that up until recently, things like forced labor were such an important part of getting things done, especially when it comes to big buildings and monuments, pretty, pretty much everything, every single day, there was a huge amount of forced labor in it. And it makes sense because without modern machinery, we had to have other humans do the work. And that's where we're able to build so much of the crazy things. And I think what's interesting is that over time, human beings have used those tools around them because we sort of look at the past and we say, oh, they didn't have electricity and they didn't have all this. How could they do all these things? But they had a lot of people who, you know, if fed and given, you know, given a place to live could be focused on a task. And I think that oftentimes today we underestimate the sheer scope and scale of the types of achievements that humans were able to achieve, you know, a long time ago without quote unquote modern technology. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's awful and terrifying, you know, kind of to think about the terracotta warriors, the terracotta army, um, you know, in China, um, you know, was created over many years by thousands of basically, you know, convict laborers, slaves, um, you know, pr prison labor, basically. Yeah. And, you know, they were just, they were buried in a mass grave next to, uh, next to the site. This was all in the name of, of creating a um, sort of spirit army that would serve the emperor in the afterlife. Um, but it was created at a huge expense of, of human life and, and 
of suffering, basically. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty dark to think about. So how much do you get to talk about archaeology in the fashion world? Not as much as I'd like to. You know, I, I think a lot of what I studied in archaeology informs my approach to um, to a lot of what we do. And, uh, and it informs, um, I don't know, I guess my sort of general uh, taste and philosophy. I mean... I rarely get to go too deep on this stuff. I'm not, it's not like I'm, you know, studying, uh, you know, <laughs> studying like Roman, um, I don't know, like Roman statues to get clothing ideas or anything like that. But, um, you know, I was always very interested in kind of the visual uh, manifestations of status, meaning, power. And uh, I think all those things in a general sort of way, uh, inform what I'm doing. But, um, but yeah, you know, I would like to be able to, uh, incorporate archeology span a little more directly into, uh, I don't know, my daily life, but kind of, you know, into my regular, regular. But now, we're, now we're really talking about the related topic of anthropology. Yeah. You know, it's all, it all kind of is, um, I mean, I was a guy that studied the Romans and uh, and ancient China under one thesis. So I've never been a big fan of, you know, kind of the barriers of of academia. And there's um, so many. They throw sociology in there, and you're like, where does one discipline begin and another one end? Yeah, I mean, I've I've always been a big fan of kind of a cross disciplinary approach. And you know, archaeology is the study of material culture, but you know, you're not going to get very far without looking at ancient history, the written sources as well in this in the kinds of time periods that I was interested in. It's very much overlapping with art history, anthropology. Um, you know, you could go on and on. Now, going back to the Indiana Jones thing, is that completely made up Hollywood or have there ever been archaeologists that have gotten into that much adventure because i know that that like your your sort of rank and file archaeologist uh might have a very interesting life but time spent on the field at a dig is a lot more like camping than uh jungle touring yeah you know i mean what i can say is my experience as an archaeologist uh doesn't bear too much resemblance to uh the indiana jones films you know i think uh, a lot of people go on their first excavation they're ready for adventure and uh you're kind of brushing dirt for hours and hours on end. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean that's not interesting, but you know, you're not chasing down Nazis and uh, you know, you don't have the big boulder kind of uh, rolling down behind you. Um, you know, it's funny though, talking about Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford uh, has done a lot for archeology. span And I think he's, he's donated a lot. Um, to the preservation of Petra and I think some other sites. He actually was honored one year by the AIA, which is the uh, yeah, kind of the, the learned society for archaeologists in the United States. And I um, actually got to go to that dinner where he was being honored and uh, everyone was just absolutely giddy. Um, and uh, it, was, it was actually really sad. Uh, Harrison Ford was sick. And he oh, couldn't no. be there in person. And he did like a, it was like a recorded message. 
but people were really bummed out. And I'm talking about like very senior academics um, who were so excited to see, you know, to see a guy who I'm sure in some ways is their hero. I mean, he put he put optics on a profession that didn't exist, right? If it wasn't for like the movies and Spielberg and his, you know, sex appeal, there wouldn't be the optics on archaeologists. People wouldn't even know what an archaeologist did. People still don't know what an archaeologist is. I mean, the number of times I tell people I'm an archaeologist and they're like, oh, wow. So did you find a lot of dinosaur bones? Um, (laughs) Oh, that's harsh. Oh, it's like, it's, it's probably like every other person. I mean, you're digging through the dirt, so I get it. It's every other person. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But it's understandable. I mean, there are huge swaths of, you know, knowledge and possible professions that I know absolutely nothing about. So I wanted to be a paleontologist. Then archaeologist for a while. Paleontology for me came first as a kid. Was it was it archaeology for you first or something else? Yeah, you know, I don't think I really had as much of a dinosaur phase. I don't know. I'm trying to think. You know, as a kid growing up, I was... <laughs> we talk about was, like every kid has it. I sincerely doubt every kid has a dinosaur. Yeah, like I mean, maybe, I don't maybe. know. Yeah, archaeology. Well, archaeology, you know, was a little later and, a, uh, you know, somewhat serious because I'd already been studying Latin and studying ancient history and... So, Which I recommend for everyone. Everyone should learn Latin. It really helps. Definitely. I'm a I'm a huge advocate. I'm just starting to um well have some conversations about hopefully getting involved in a program that will um hopefully, you know, increase uh I don't know, the amount of attention and funding and opportunities for studying Latin and uh, and also Greek and, and the classics generally in public schools. This is what I thought. Hear me out. They should throw it in as like a subsection to English class because so much of the English language is derived from this. Plus all that stuff with grammar that nobody uses. Why are we even focused on that? Whoever needs to diagram a sentence, throw all that stuff out and incorporate a couple of lessons on, like you said, those classic languages, Greek and Latin and whatnot. that has built up the English language. I'm not sure I can agree with you on throwing out the the, uh, the grammatical stuff, but I, okay. I do think people <laughs> should, study, uh, should study Latin. I think it's yeah, it's very very um, it's very helpful in a in a very wide variety of ways. And and I think aside from studying Latin, also you know the study of ancient history um, uh, is extremely extremely kind of valuable as well. It might I don't know maybe kind of an unfashionable thing to say. But uh, I do think like the study of of the classical world, the classical Western world, um, you know, is is very useful in many ways. Obviously, I kind of combined it, um, you know, with study of uh, of ancient China as well. I think, you know, the same could be said of other sort of early civilizations. Um, I think it's uh, it's very useful because a lot of the you know, a lot of the issues that the modern world faces uh, are nothing new, you know, and uh, chances are, you know, Cicero or somebody else will have written something that, um, you know, might be useful about it. What do you recommend that an adult does to sort of catch up? Because like you said, a lot of people have just missed out on this. I like audiobooks a lot, but what do you recommend an average person does to get caught up a little bit to learn not all, but some of what you've learned that you feel has helped make you a better, rounded, contemporary person? Wow, that's actually a great question. Um, one I haven't actually thought that much about because 
I've been so, you know, I've spent a lot of my adult life immersed pretty deep in this stuff. But, you know, there are a lot of great, um, there are a lot of great books uh, on the classical world that are fairly accessible um, for the reader that, you know, wasn't, didn't necessarily major in classics. You know, there are great books by Mary Beard, who's a professor at Cambridge. There's um, great books by Josiah Osgood, who was actually one of my professors at Georgetown, um, you know, about, about ancient history. I'm, I'm biased to, uh, you know, the Roman principate. It's a period that I studied. So, you know, the two in question there, Mary Beard, Josiah Osgood, you know, kind of speak to that, that period, but, there are great books. Um, you know, those two authors, you can't, you really couldn't go wrong starting there, um, about, about the ancient world that, uh, yeah, that are very accessible. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the blog to watch store and we carry art apparel and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the blog to watch store. Right now, the blog to watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the blog to watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The blog to watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the blog to watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So let's go to the clothing brand now, which, you know, if anybody hasn't gone to the Rowing Blazers website, go there and check it out because it's, you know, like Jack said, a lot of colors, interesting pop culture references to um things that you grew up with, stuff that I grew up with. We were talking earlier, you had uh, a Babar um, elephant, uh, you know, image on one of your shirts and stuff like that. Just just fun stuff. You know, help somebody understand who is the wearer right now? Who is buying the clothing? I know, of course, it's a cross-section, but, you know, there's some demographics more than others. You know, who is wearing the Rowing Blazers clothing right now? You know, our customer base is pretty diverse, really. Um, you know, and I think that's that's how we like it. You know, um, if uh, yeah, it, it would be very very difficult to kind of like describe one person, and that's the Rowing Blazers customer. When we had our um, brick and mortar store, and we used to have parties all the time, obviously kind of pre-COVID, right? Um, you know, you could really visually sort of see uh, the cross section of um, of people who were part of this community and. It really kind of ran the gamut from, uh, you know, like cool Soho, uh, you know, very plugged in, uh, very fashion forward, um, you know, kind of kids to, um, you know, to guys who were coming in, like who had rode at Harvard and coming in their old Harvard rowing blazers. And it's like everybody in between you used to have Japanese tourists who were in New York for like a day or two days and they would spend, you know, a couple of hours of their short time in the city um, coming to the rowing blazer shop. Uh, you know, I mean, which is, which is like hugely flattering. You'd see families coming in, you'd see, you know, lower East side, you know, kids coming in, 
you'd see, um, yeah, you'd see people coming in carrying bags from uh, Ralph Lauren and Brooks Brothers, and you'd see people coming in carrying bags from, you know, Supreme. It really kind of ran the gamut. So what's the plan after the pandemic? Is the store going to open back up again? Is it going to go sort of all digital? Like from a young brand's perspective, like how do you navigate a world where, you know, seeing and touching is, you know, kind of a big deal? Yeah, we're actually about to do a pop-up next week. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but we're about to do a a pop-up next week um, in the Lower East Side in New York, uh, space to Rivington Street, where we actually did our very first uh, pop-up when Rowing Blazers as a brand first launched. So we're very excited about that. And we're also doing a pop-up on Nantucket inside of Murray's Toggery, um, which will be going on this whole summer. Uh, We're also looking at um, uh, a pop-up in London. And we're looking at, you know, a sort of longer-term, bringing back a longer-term brick-and-mortar shop uh, in New York City. So, you know, we definitely aren't losing touch with, um, you know, with a physical retail kind of experience. But uh, obviously with the pandemic and our lease in our old space was was ending anyway, and it just made sense um, to kind of, uh, yeah, to kind of open up a new uh, set of offices. Our offices used to be attached to the store um, and to really focus on our e-commerce business for a few months. but. I'm looking forward to these pop-ups and, uh, you know, looking forward to having a new store sometime soon. It seems to be that the sort of marketing, I'll call it like, approach these days is people learn about your product online. And if it's something like clothing, then they sort of oftentimes buy it in the real world. But it's very often that they initially learn about it and even sort of get motivated to buy it online. Um, Is that sort of, you know, do you consider yourself a digital native and you're sort of very comfortable with that world or are you also in the process of you know developing your skills as a as a clothing creative director and designer also trying to navigate the complicated world of, of marketing you know i guess i do a little bit of everything um you know i am the creative director of the brand i'm designing all the clothes i'm directing all of the you know the visuals um but i'm also the ceo of the of the business and uh you know, business is not something I've ever studied. It's not something, to be honest, <laughs> at the outset I was very interested in, but uh, I've had to learn very quickly as I go. And, you know, I think sometimes designers starting their own brand and trying to grow their own brand um, can kind of have those two roles, uh, you know, become at odds with, with each other. And uh, I think my experience actually in rowing um, has made me, a slightly more practical person. And, um, you know, you have to accept that things aren't always going to go perfectly or, you know, exactly how the creative director, you know, inside um, might want them to go. But, you know, you have to balance, um, yeah, you have to balance uh, running a business with, um, yeah, with, with, the role of creative director of of this brand and bringing it to life, it it does get a little bit you know complicated sometimes, but uh, it's been kind of fun to learn as we go as well. What's the easiest and hard part of sort of entrepreneurialism? Because in very different ways, you and I are in the same boat. Where you start a business, 
because you're good at something, but then you have to run a business. And there's all these other elements that come in that you just, you're forced to, you're sort of just sort of forced to wing. Um, you know, some things come naturally than others just for you. What's, what's been the easiest parts and what are some of the parts that you look forward to fully offloading to others when you can? I think the easiest part is, you know, I, I know what I want. I always know what I want. There's no, um, I don't know. There's no shortage of ideas. And, uh, they're just like, yeah. And I think that, um, the most difficult part is that there are just so many distractions, you know, obviously rowing blazers is doing very well right now as a brand. And it means we have a lot of opportunities. We have a lot of people reaching out to us every single day, sometimes with very exciting, uh, you know, exciting opportunities. And, um, there are only so many hours in a day. Um, you know, there's only so much, um, I can fit in my head at once. And so it can be tough, um, when presented with so many, so many opportunities to know which ones you jump for and which ones, you know, you kind of, you have to say no to. I kind of look at it like gardening. You have to plant all these seeds and keep watering them and attending to them, but you don't know which of them are ever going to grow or in what order. And sometimes that none of them seem to grow and some of them all seem to grow at the same time. And it's, um, it's this crazy roller coaster existence when you never know what next week is going to hold. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, oftentimes, you have to be the most confident one in the room, right? Because if you show any type of lack of confidence in front of your team, uh, that's sort of, you know, that that's infectious. And so you have to be confident even if you have no idea what to do in a situation. And I don't think society always recognizes the, well, you know, the 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 level of, uh, of stress that can come with that, as well as the fact that there's no real lessons on how to figure any of that out. No, that's very true. And uh, I, I totally agree you know, with the sort of seed metaphor, you know, the, the tough thing for us as well as we've, as we've grown is that, you know, we start to have a very full calendar and, you know, we also start to have to plan things further and further, uh, ahead of time, which is also, um, you know, also has its own challenges. You know, you, you design something, you want to see it in the world, right away you don't want to wait over a year to see it i mean the seiko collaboration actually has been in the works uh definitely for over a year so you know that's that's kind of a good example so let's talk about that the watch uh we have a video which is going to come out that people can look at but we can talk about that for, for a few minutes here there's three watches that are just about to come out they say they say rowing blazers right in the dial that's kind of a big deal that's your baby it's like piece of view is on the dial and they've got these um interesting bezels that are cool and they come with these colorful some would even say whimsical nato straps in addition to the steel metal bracelets it's a cool it's a cool watch they're fun i think they'll do well um you know as a creator you know what does it feel like now that you have been responsible for the creation of some watches yeah i mean i think it is kind of a bucket list thing hopefully uh you know these are the first of many you know as a designer someone um, you know, very interested in watches. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice sort of box to tick. And I think it's a lot more than that as well, because working with Seiko is really kind of a dream come true. I'm very, uh, excited, very happy with 
how the watches have turned out. Um, I do think they're, yeah, they're very kind of timeless designs, but yeah, a little bit irreverent. They're colorful. Um, they really speak to the Rowing Blazers DNA. So these watches are going to be sold on your website. Is that basically where people need to buy them? Yeah, they'll be on our site. And uh, I think they'll be on Seiko's site. And I think Seiko may have a sort of very selective um, distribution plan for them uh, beyond that as well. Um, I'm actually, I'm not 100% sure on that. But uh, yeah, there are three designs. Two of them are limited edition. Um, one of them is a special edition. So they may, you know, may come back at some point. But uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited about, about the launch. So I've been doing like sort of an ongoing narrative of people such as yourself. And I call you sort of an, an enthusiast-based uh, entrepreneur where you are essentially making products that you want to own. And, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of what you do, you're like, hey, Jack, what would I like? And, and then you, you make products that suit your tastes first and foremost. And then you're like, well, if other people like it, that's great. Now, there's a lot of people in your position that have been responsible for, I'll call them watch collaborations or even coming up with new little brands and stuff like that. And I think this is sort of a big deal in culture but I just sort of want to hear from your perspective, why is this a good idea right now? Why is it that personality-based new watches are the way to go in 2021 and beyond? I mean, I don't know about watches specifically uh, with regards to that question, but I think just in general, you, you are absolutely right. That is my approach. Um, I can't imagine it any other way. I mean, I do know friends that, you know, see a business opportunity, I guess, and uh, they start companies that are making widgets, you know, all day, every day, because, yeah, they see like an opportunity in the market for those widgets. But um, uh, we do things a little bit differently. Um, we do things very much based on, you know, passion and uh, my own interests. And you're absolutely right. You, you hit the nail on the head. We're creating things that I would want to own, that I would want to wear. Um, not just when it comes to washes, but just uh, across all of our categories. And I can't really imagine uh, running a brand any other way. So how much further would you go with, you know, like a subsequent Seiko product? Like what would you change to make it even more Jack Carlson or more rowing blazers? Or even if you had to make up an entire watch? Again, it's not like you have to dedicate to it. But like, what are some things that came to mind when you were faced with the prospect of coming up with a new timepiece? Well, I had a lot of ideas. I still have a lot of ideas of, of things I'd like to make. And uh, hopefully this is just the first of many uh, watches that, that Rowing Blazers uh, is is creating. So uh, I don't want to give away too much more, but there's no, there's no shortage of ideas. Um, we went through a lot of different ideas. We came up with these three designs. They're all pretty classic. They're all very wearable. Um, but they are all, yeah, very much kind of uh, in the rowing blazers spirit. They're they're sort of colorful, fun, irreverent. If you look closely, um, you know they're they're very fun. But they're also, yeah, they're very classic, very wearable. And uh, we thought these three would be the perfect way uh, for rowing blazers to kind of um, hopefully begin its its watch uh, journey and and hopefully just the beginning of our journey with Seiko as well. Okay, so I want to end on this one topic that I've been thinking about. And because you have 
sort of dual experience in today's fashion world and, you know, archaeology and studying ancient symbols, you're a good person to talk to about this. Now, we look back at, you know, thinking about Indiana Jones, this notion of idols and these statues and all these figurines. And every time we talk about it, we talk about them from having this like religious component or they're part of a ritual or they had some type of special higher symbolism. And we sort of think that they were like a very, very big deal of society. And then you look at our society today and we literally have action figures and, and you know, all kinds of tchotchkes who sit around and little figurines. And we, we don't think of them as being, I mean, some of them are religious and they're very, very important people, but other ones that just, they sort of have a, a small meaning. And my theory was essentially that those old types of idols and our today's types of idols serve almost the exact same purposes. They're taken just as seriously and that for so much of human history, ever since we're living in little houses, we started to decorate it and us with things that sort of maybe communicate who we are or remind us what our values are. But there's some part of the human body or the personality that isn't complete without having these reminders around us of the things that we should care about. Thoughts? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, we all want to, uh, you know, feather our nest. We all want to, you know, kind of deck ourselves out in, uh, in clothing and accessories, you know, in ways that are going to communicate um, both to, uh, to outsiders and also to ourselves who we, who we are or who we think we are or who we want to be. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of, uh, it's one of those things that's kind of human nature more than anything, even cultural. And sometimes those things, you know, can be ascribed like a religious significance, uh, political significance. Um, but you know, however you color them, it is, uh, it is kind of human nature that we want to, um, yeah, we want to kind of craft a narrative about ourselves, um, based on, uh, the objects that we own and, uh, the things we, uh, the things we, you know, we pile around us and, uh, and, and put on our bodies and on our backs. Do you think about that when selecting some of the characters and some of the cultural reminders that you put on, you know, some of the rowing blazers clothing, uh, or you just think this is popular, this is cool. Are you thinking about what that symbol meant to you or might mean to people? No, I mean, I think about it all the time. I think about it with pretty much everything, everything we make, you know, I'm sitting here wearing a rugby shirt that, you know, it's not, it's not like a totally new design or color scheme that I just came up with out of the clear blue sky. I mean, uh, it, it, it can be traced back to, um, to some of the first rugby shirts that, uh, Yvonne Chouinard, uh, who was the founder of Patagonia bought, um, while he was in Scotland, I think they were Umbro rugby shirts originally. Um, and that, you know, he and his friends started wearing when they were climbing and that, you know, it's a, it's a design and it's a color scheme that made its way into, you know, pop culture and you can find pictures of Chevy Chase and Chris Farley and a bunch of other people wearing this kind of, you know, this kind of pattern. Um, and so when, when you put it, but it's not something you can just go, go out and find in the marketplace. So, you know, it's part of why I wanted to, wanted to, um, you know, bring it back into existence. It's also, it's not like we're stepping on anybody's toes and it's, oh, it's this brand is, you know, 
owns this design. It's not it's not really associated with any one, you know, sort of uh, institution. But um, it has all these cultural and historic touch points when you put it on. And obviously, you know, wearing this is um, primary colors, blue, red, yellow. You know, there's something very 90s about that color scheme and wearing these bright colors. You know, there's also there's something evocative of childhood and youth when you're wearing bright colors, especially bright primary colors like this. You know, when you put it on, it's a rugby shirt as well. It's got the white collar. It's, uh, you know, it calls to mind um, the sport of rugby, the, the origins of rugby in British boarding schools. Um, you know, it's got the white collar. So if you're going to go on a Zoom, you know, you look a little more put together than uh, if you're just wearing a sweatshirt. But it also it has all kinds of connotations of, you know, sort of like elite sport. And, uh, you know, a sense of leisure and, you know, you put it on, it's different from putting on, um, a dress shirt, you know, that has different connotations, probably more, uh, associated with the office, um, than, than a rugby shirt there. I mean, I don't talk about all these different kind of, you know, references, uh, you know, kind of out in the open all the time, but all of these, um, yeah, all of these kind of references, cultural touch points, history runs through my head with every single product that we make. Look, it's a it's a it's a cool assortment of things, and and I can't wait for a store to, to open up here in Los Angeles. Even though I know you love my city, you've got um, I do, I love LA. Um, uh, Fred Siegel carries rowing blazers, so you can go into Fred Siegel, and I think they've got a pretty nice setup actually. Where, like Ron Robinson? Um, I think oh, you mean the well, one in Santa Monica? Something about the one on Melrose. Yeah, I think, uh, well, both the main sort of uh, Fred Siegel shop as well as uh, Fred Siegel in Malibu. I think it's the one on Sunset and the one in Malibu. I think both carry uh, both carry rowing blazers and both have a pretty nice, nice shop, uh, nice sort of shopping shop. I okay. Think, you know, Fred Siegel, I think Sunset is the is the flagship of uh, well, Fred the, Siegel. the reason I laugh is because the funny thing is most people don't know because Fred Siegel is now internationally known, but the original Fred Siegel, the one on Melrose, isn't actually a store. It's a shopping center with a few stores in it. And it's only the other Fred Siegels that actually is a store. So the original Fred Siegel isn't actually a store. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, but yeah, if you do go, if you do go check it out, um, uh, and you go to, uh, yeah, you go to the one on Sunset or you go up in Malibu, uh, you should be able to see some of our stuff uh, in person. Okay, that has been, um, that's been a good conversation. I, w- I even want to talk to you about more about colors, but I figure we got to do another time. Uh, I am, I just, I just realized that, you know, colors are such a big deal now, but for so many years, we're just wearing grays and whites and blacks and just boring, blor- boring colors without, and colors really coming back. And I'm just thinking about, but I haven't even thought about it, so I don't have any good theories. Uh, everyone, this has been Jack Carlson, founder of Rowing Blazers. Check out the the new collaboration washes with Seiko. Uh, check out the website. Jack, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.
Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?